Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together again this evening to be spoken to by you, to be sanctified by you, to be assured by you, to be promised by you. We pray that your word would be effectual in our lives, that it would accomplish everything that you have set out for it to accomplish. We pray that we'd be sanctified through it and that we'd be conformed more and more to the image of our glorified and risen Savior, Jesus. We pray that we would remember and be reassured by our baptism that we are not our own, but that we belong to you. Through Jesus Christ and through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated. And please turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I just want to look at two verses here at the beginning that will kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at throughout the sermon, but we'll turn to a couple other passages as well. But baptism is crucially important in our lives. I wonder sometimes if we really have it on a back burner issue and think about it as kind of a matter of indifference or one way or another. When talking to others about Jesus or about the kingdom or about the gospel or about his grace, do they really come away from conversations or from sermons or from things that we've done saying the same thing that the Ethiopian eunuch said? After the Ethiopian eunuch had an encounter with Philip and Philip basically unpacked for him the scriptures as he was reading uh, Isaiah 53, he said, what prevents me from being baptized? You know, something in that sermon must have caused him to think, boy, this is really important. This is something that I need to do. There's water here. What would prevent me from doing that? We can think of Saul after his conversion. In Acts chapter 22, as he was, uh, it says to him, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And in that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, what you, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon his name. And then Jesus Christ, right? At the climax, just about before he descends into heaven, he gives a mission to the church. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations doing what, beloved? Baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We get the impression that baptism is really significant, isn't it? It's something really important. We actually consider it to be a part of the second mark of the true church. We believe the first mark of the true church is the faithful preaching of the gospel, the pure preaching of the gospel. The second is the pure administration of the sacraments. These are things that God has ordained and given to his church as a means of grace for him to use. And what we want to remember at the very beginning is that God is the active agent in baptism, that God is doing something. He's making people his own. He's marking them out as his, that he is active. Let's hear now... The word of God in Acts 2, just 38 and 39, verses 38 and 39. We'll come to it a little bit more fully in a bit. But hear this. This is after the conclusion. This is on Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This has been a waited for and prophesied day. It couldn't be a more important day in redemptive history. And the Spirit is being poured out by the risen and ascended Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter preaches a message. 
a message of salvation about who the person and work of Jesus Christ is and the reality of our sins and the condemnation that we deserve. And then notice, actually, let's start at verse 7, 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's remarkable to think about. That a height of the climax of Christ's work as he's ascended into heaven and now pours out the spirit that the message after they were cut to the quick by the law of God, recognizing they were sinners, they said, what must we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so this evening, we want to look at three things as we think about baptism. First, we want to look at the purposes of baptism. Second, we want to look at the promises of baptism. And third, we want to look at the people of baptism. So the purposes of baptism, the promises of baptism, and the people of baptism. First, the purposes of baptism, and we'll highlight two. The first purpose of baptism is admission into the visible church. In other words, it's initiation into the covenant community. Look, if you will, again, at the Heidelberg Catechism 74. Question 74. On page 884. Question 74 is asking about, should we baptize infants? We're going to get to in our third point. But notice where it says, therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too, infants, should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. So by they too, meaning obviously adults who haven't been baptized, who come to faith, should be baptized, and their children should be baptized as well. But notice it says, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the church. That's what we're saying, first and foremost, that baptism is incorporated or engrafting someone into the visible church. We say that they are holy or set apart. They're called out ones. They don't belong to themselves. They don't belong to the world. They belong to God. They belong to his body. They belong to his bride. They belong to his church. They belong to his people. And he's taking the initiative, as God always does, to put them there, to make them part of his community. He put them in a believing family, and now he's making them part of the church. Baptism is really something that is for the church, not for individuals to do on their own or small groups. It's administered publicly by a minister of the gospel in a public corporate setting. It happens publicly. When we also believe that you should exit the church publicly as well. You can be transferred from one true church to another church, God could receive you directly into glory, in which case that would be acknowledged in a public church as well. And then in those rare and difficult cases, when someone abandons the faith that they profess, there's a public announcement as well that they have been excluded or excommunicated from the church of God. Our life with God is not secret in any way. He makes us part of it publicly, and we stay in it publicly. We are either transferred to another true church or go directly to be with the Lord. And doesn't that make sense? Because the church is the very place where God has ordained 
to bring his people to greater faith and to give them faith and to nurture them in faith, to give the very means of grace that they are going to need to sustain them, to create faith, to nourish it, and to grow them in the Lord. It's the very place where we hear the word preached. It's the very place where we hear the holy gospel proclaimed. It's the very place where we call out as a family in prayer, where we call out as a family in confession together. We are gathered together as the people of God. We participate in prayer. We participate in listening together. We participate in confessing together. We participate in praising and in giving together. We're part of a community. We're part of a family that God has made us. We participate in discipleship and catechism. We participate in living in community and fellowship with one another and living under God as our shepherd, as our king. And here we receive the word and the sacrament. So we say the first purpose of baptism is really to initiate someone to bring them into the visible covenant community. And I don't want to get on a whole doctrinal dissertation about the visible and invisible aspect of the church, but the visible aspect is the church that you're gathered into, and the church acts and administers the, the sign and seal of baptism because that's what the Lord has called us to do. The internal or invisible church where the Lord uses his Holy Spirit to call those who are his is unavailable to us. It's a mystery. We look at the visible church, and so we're recognizing that people are brought into the church. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. You can't just be a Christian on your own. You're part of the family of God. You're part of the bride of Christ. You're part of a community. And the visible community we recognize has always been a mixed bag. Right? One, of, one of the difficulties when we talk about baptism is because some people rightly recognize, hey, there are people in your church that don't actually believe or don't actually practice. That's true. But that's always been part of the visible community of the Lord from the beginning, hasn't it? They're always elect and reprobate in the visible community. Abel and Cain, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Peter and Judas, Ananias and Sapphira. The Lord said that the wheat and tares would grow up together. There is a plucking and a pruning that the church is called on to do if we know that someone's not walking with the Lord, if we know that someone's denying the faith. The epistle to Timothy and 1 John and Jude all say they went out from us because they weren't of us. But it seemed like they were of us because they had received the sign. But they had rejected the Lord. They had rejected the promises. It wasn't that the sign had no bearing. It's saying now the bearing is they're going to have to wear the weight of judgment on themselves. They're going to have to bear the waters of judgment crashing in on them that Jesus bore for those who are his. And so he warns us over and over that the visible community is a mixed bag of those who truly possess faith and those who only profess faith but don't actually possess it. And so it ought not to surprise us that that is still the case in the New Covenant Church. We do not teach that baptism guarantees entrance into the invisible church. The first purpose and reason why we baptize is to initiate them into the visible church. The second purpose of baptism is because it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. In other words, it's a sign and seal of Christ plus all of his blessings. There's a continuity of the covenant of grace all the way from Abraham to Pentecost to today. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17.
in Genesis chapter 17, we have the Lord making his covenant with Abram, Abraham. And notes what's said here. Genesis 17, starting in verse 1 through verse 8. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nation, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So you hear over and over, right? I'm making a promise to you, and this is for your offspring after you. And it's that that Peter drafts from in his Pentecost sermon. Peter's making it really clear that the promises made to Abraham are the same promises that are made to the New Covenant Church. Abraham was looking forward to a coming king, a coming Messiah. He was looking forward to one who would pay the penalty for his sins. He was looking forward to a substitute. And now we're looking back on that substitute, but it's the same promises, it's the same Lord, it's the same faith, it's the same baptism, it's the same promises. All that's changed is the sign. This changed from circumcision to baptism. But there's a continuity of the covenant of grace, and there's a continuity of the promises that Peter is making crystal clear on Pentecost. This problem, this problem, <laughs> this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. In other words, it's really for converts to the faith, and it's for us and for our children. And that's what Peter is preaching on Pentecost. He couldn't be making it any more clear that this is the promise, and that this is for you and for your children and all who are far off. One of my professors, David Van Drunen, had this wonderful summary. The ultimate reason why people are baptized is not to regenerate that person, nor is it a presumption of regeneration. We do it because this person is a member of the church of Jesus Christ, the visible church, and therefore they receive the sign. We do it because Christ commands it, we do it because God uses means, and we do it because we trust the Lord. Notice what I didn't say in our confessions didn't say. It didn't say baptism regenerates you. We're saying that it initiates you into the covenant community, and it's a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, that everyone who believes and everyone who embraces those promises is saved by Jesus Christ. They receive Christ plus all of his blessings. And they're brought into the community where this is taught, where this is inculcated, where the Lord uses means to bring about the results of the promise that he made. And so let's consider those promises then. The first thing we wanted to consider was the purposes of baptism. Two, Right? We wanted to say it's initiation into the visible community, the church. And second, it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. That same covenant that was made with Abraham, the same covenant that Peter preached on Pentecost, the same covenant that you hear preached from this pulpit every week. 
But what about the promises of baptism? It's really meant to be a comfort to us. It is reported that Martin Luther was once asked, how do you know you are a Christian? And Martin Luther's response was, I've been baptized. One theologian, when reflecting on this, said, that is a bad answer. If it means that just because I had some water sprinkled on me, or I've been dunked in some water willy-nilly, that I'm a Christian. That's magic. It is a great answer in the way that Martin Luther was looking to the objective reality of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. He wasn't basing his comfort or his confidence on his feelings, on his ups and downs, on his experiences, on his doubts, or on his failures, or on its struggle. He was looking to the person and work of Jesus Christ and said, I belong to him. I've been baptized in his name. It's a great comfort to us to consider and to remember our baptism. How do you know you are a Christian? I've been baptized. I've been washed in the blood of Jesus. I have been raised to a new life through the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Holy Trinity who lives within me has made me new. This is what our pastor unpacked for us last week from Titus. Note what we, we don't say. We say it is not the water that washes away the sins, but the blood of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus. Look at Heidelberg 72. It anticipates some of the confusion about this. It says, does the outward washing with water itself wash away sin? No. Only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from sins. Then why baptize? It's meant to remind us. It's meant to assure us. It's a gift to us to remember and to remind us of the promises that we have been signed, that we have been sealed, that we have been delivered, that we are not ours, but we belong to our Lord. It's interesting to read in the catechism all the times it says, as surely as. Let's go back. Look at Heidelberg 69 for a minute. Note how the catechism is trying to remind you and assure you of the comfort that you have in your baptism, the reality of what happens when we are united to Jesus Christ. Heidelberg 69 says, How does baptism remind you and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross is for you personally? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away my soul's impurity, in other words, all of my sin. That's wonderful. In baptism, you get wet. As surely as you got wet, so surely does Jesus Christ's blood wash away your sins. So surely does the Holy Spirit make you new. Look at Heidelberg 70. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by his grace, has forgiven my sins because of Christ's blood poured out for me in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed me and set me apart to be a member of Christ so that more and more I may become dead to sin and increasingly live a holy and blameless life. And then note 73. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reasons for these words. (laughs) That's always a good phrase, right? God has good reasons for every word. To begin with, he wants to teach us 
that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed from our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. The catechism's taking great pains to make this clear because it's hard for us to believe, isn't it? That as surely as water was put on you, just as surely as water washes away dirt from your physical body, so surely does Christ's blood atone for your sins, and so surely does the Holy Spirit make you new, part of the new creation. Turn to Romans 6. Listen to all the lines in the water, pun intended, as we read through Romans 6, verse 1 through 11, about what this is saying about our baptism. Romans 6 comes after Romans 5, uh, where it had been laid out for us that Christ is the federal head and that it's in him that we have the forgiveness of sins. It's in him that we're justified. It's in him that we have a righteousness imputed to us. Just this remarkable grace that Paul unpacks that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the word of God alone. And then he's anticipating, you know, people coming and saying, well, then it doesn't matter how you live. And what does he say? What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Get this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you all must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What a rich passage, right? We could take a whole sermon just to unpack Romans 6. But I just want us to know all the lines in the water connected with baptism. Why can't you, why not continue in sin? You can't. You're part of a new creation. You were in Adam. You're now in Christ. You were dead in your trespasses. You're now alive. You weren't regenerate. You're now regenerate. It's not just you believe different things or different propositional truths. You have been made new. You have been reborn. You have been cleansed. You have been forgiven. You have been justified. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You've been baptized into Christ. And you've been raised with him to a newness of life. You've been baptized into his death. He died for the forgiveness of your sins. You can have comfort and confidence. How do you know that you're a Christian? I've been baptized. I've been buried with Christ. His sacrifice is sufficient for me to cover all of my sins. How wonderful. 
in order that was Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. Our old self was crucified with him, that our new self is raised to life. We've been set free from sin. That's justification. We live with him now and forever. That's glorification. We are dead to sin and alive to Jesus. We've been brought from death to life. That's regeneration. We're, called, we're told that we're going to walk more and more like him. That's sanctification, right? It's an embarrassment of riches. It's saying that everything, Christ plus all of his blessings, are ours in Jesus Christ, and that is signified and sealed to you in your baptism. You are not your own. You have union and communion with Jesus Christ. John Calvin said baptism this is where the title of the sermon came from, is a shield to repel doubt. How often do we doubt our salvation? Or we look at ourselves. You know, every week when we come to the Lord's table, it says don't allow the weaknesses of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from coming. It wants to remind us. This body was broken for you. This blood was shed for you. Remember your baptism. It's a shield to repel doubt. I am forgiven. I am washed. I am cleansed. I am free. I am reborn. I am new. There's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate me from the love of the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that we don't baptize in the name of God, do we? But we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because all three persons of the Holy Spirit are actively and intimately involved in our salvation. It's a mission of mercy from the Father to send the Son. It's a mission of sacrifice and love on the part of the Son to come and to die for us. And it's a mission of application for the Holy Spirit to be sent out, given to us, to apply everything that Christ accomplished for us, to us, and to preserve us in that. So all these promises... What's promised to us in baptism? Christ, plus all of his blessings. Regeneration, forgiveness, justification, sanctification, glorification, union, presence. All of it. From that little thing that happened, that promise was for you and for your children, all who are far off who call on the name of Jesus. John Calvin, as I said, called baptism the shield to repel doubt. We need a shield to repel doubt. Doubt about whether God can really love such sinful people as we are. Doubt of the modern age that impinges on us from every side. Is there a God? Is there meaning to life? Can Christianity's outrageous claims be true? And in the midst of these doubts, in the midst of these problems, in the midst of these wrestling, in the midst of these temptations, baptism is a shield. Baptism is a visible word in which God says, Yes, I am your God and you are mine. You belong to me. And so then the final thing we want to look at is the people of baptism. We looked at the purposes of it. We looked at the promises of it. But the people, right? Who should be baptized? Who should receive the sign of baptism? Well, converts to Christianity who have never been baptized for sure. That's the preaching at Pentecost of Peter, right? All who are far off, everyone who doesn't know or is a stranger to the promises or a stranger to true religion, they should be baptized. Anyone who's never been baptized before. And then we also believe the children of at least one believing parent. 
because the promise is for you and for your children. They are considered holy. And by that we mean set apart, right? They're initiated into the covenant community. It's not saying they're regenerated. It's not saying that they're perfectly sanctified. They're holy. They're set apart. They belong to the Lord. It's tied to our understanding of how God deals with people, of how God has dealt with families throughout history. It's tied to the unity of the covenant of grace throughout all of redemptive history. And so sometimes, of course, there's arguments about this. And there's no one definitive text either way that says you should or shouldn't baptize your infants. But I submit to you the whole warp and woof of Scripture, the overwhelming evidence of Scripture, give us a good and necessary consequences and inferences. Of course we should. Heidelberg 74 says, Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from their sins through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. So really, we're just relying on the continuity of the covenant of grace. All of Scripture, the warp and woof of Scripture was, this promise is for you and for your children. We read Genesis 17, the height of of the covenant made with Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you as an everlasting covenant. And note that Abraham got the sign of the covenant, circumcision, after he believed, while his sons got the sign of the covenant before. It's not tied to the moment in which you believe or not. It's God acting. It's God making a promise. It's God putting his sign or his mark on someone. And then we noted that continuity in terms of Pentecost. Again, don't miss the redemptive historical significance of Pentecost, that it's at that moment that the promise is, this is for you and for your children. And then as the rest of the book of Acts unfolds, there are five times that it says that so-and-so and and their household was baptized. So-and-so and their household was baptized, right? People will argue over whether there were infants in there or certainly there were children. But the principle is the same. Can you imagine if you could travel back in time and you could have lunch with Abraham and Isaac? And you're at a deli, right? You're eating. And Isaac says, you know, my wife's pregnant. She's got twins. And I don't know if I'm going to circumcise them. Because I'm not sure if they're going to walk with the Lord or not. I'm not sure if they're really going to follow the promises. I'm not really sure if they're going to embrace these. So we talked about it and we're going to wait. If you were sitting there with Abraham, what would you say? That's crazy. You need to act on the promises. You need to obey and trust the Lord. You need to have your kids circumcised, your twins circumcised. And we come to find out, right, one believed and one didn't. But it didn't mean that the other, it was of no effect. Hebrews tell us he spurned his birthright. Esau walked away from his birthright. What birthright? The one in circumcision. It wasn't that it was meaningless or empty. It was massively significant. Just like when our children, when they are baptized, we warn them. If you walk away from this, it's not like it had no effect. You're in essence saying, let the waters of judgment of the flood, let the waters of the Red Sea crash in on me. 
I'll take my chances with a holy God without Jesus Christ. That's horrible. And so we warn them about that, and we call them. We call the kids in our church, right? You've heard the gospel. You've heard about Jesus Christ. Come. This promise is for you. We anticipate and expect that you grow up in this church. You grow up hearing these promises, and we pray that the Lord would make those effectual in your life and that you would embrace them. But we have to warn you. If you walk away from that, you're saying, I'll take my chances at the judgment of God without Jesus Christ. That's horrible. You have no chance. You have no hope without him. And so can you imagine sitting there with Abraham and Isaac and saying, don't circumcise. You don't know how they're going to turn out. You don't know the end. You'd be taking away something that God meant for them, for their good, and for the church as well. And you can insert your own joke here, but right, you would never recircumcise anyone, right? We don't rebaptize either. God gets it right the first time. For us, there might be an experience of it. Oh, I wish I could be baptized in the Jordan River, or I wish I could be baptized here. I wish I could do this. I understand all the experience of that. But God gets it right the first time. He puts his name on you. He marks you. He says, you are mine. And we're not called to repeat it. We're not called to do it again. We're not called to re-experience it. We're called to believe it. We're called to trust it. We're called to rest in it, not to repeat it in any way. Robert Strimple argued that if the apostles would have made a suggestion that Hebrew children were not included in the new covenant, they would have responded, I thought you were bringing me good news. Can you imagine Peter on Pentecost, that all their lives they've heard, this is for you and your children, this is for you and your children. He said, wait, 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 wait a minute. Now that the king has come, your kids aren't included anymore. That been deafening. Can you imagine the uproar? This has always been. For me and my children, and now, when the king comes, now at the expansion of the kingdom, now at the near apex of the kingdom, the apex will be when he returns, but the near apex, the penultimate point, there's less grace, there's less hope, there's less promise? Of course not. B.B. Warfield said, the argument of infant baptism in a nutshell is simply this. God established his church in the days of Abraham and put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. And he has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church, and as such, they are entitled to his ordinances. They are entitled to his blessings. We have a really robust view of baptism, beloved. A really robust view for you who believe that it's a shield to repel doubt, to remind you that you have been washed and that you have been cleansed and you have been renewed. And a real warning that goes out. It represents both salvation and judgment. If you don't embrace the promises, if you don't come when called, if you don't respond in faith, then you're saying, let the waters of judgment crash on me. And so this sign of baptism is a better sign than circumcision, isn't it? It's better because it comes with better promises. The old covenant was looking forward to the coming of Jesus, and now we're looking back. It also comes with an expansion. Not just little boys, but little girls receive the sign as well. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. It's bloodless. It's painless. It's looking back and it's looking forward. It's more expansive. We would expect that with the coming of the king. You'd expect more when he comes. And so it's a much better sign than circumcision. It's the appropriate sign for the new covenant. In circumcision, right, 
Skin is cut off, flesh is cut off. And Jesus was circumcised for us. He was cut off from the land of the living so that we could have life. And isn't it interesting? That's what baptism signifies. A new life, a rebirth, a regeneration in Christ. And it's for our little boys and it's for our little girls. It's for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's for all the nations. It's a better sign. We are not baptizing infants or children on the basis of speculation or one specific proof text, but the overwhelming evidence of Scripture and the covenant reality of the household principle throughout the entire administration of the covenant of grace. The promise to Abraham is still the gospel promise. Those who believe in Christ are the children of Abraham, and salvation belongs to them. And so covenant kids, you who are here tonight, your baptism has engrafted you into the Christian church, and it's distinguished you, it's marked you out from children of unbelievers. Do you trust in Christ's blood alone that washes away your sins just as certainly as water washes away dirt from your body? And do you believe that that sign has been given to you? I hope that you do. And I hope that you embrace that promise by faith. Tell your parents, tell me, tell Pastor Bill, tell somebody about that. We believe and trust and pray and hope that what was promised to you as a child, you embrace as the Lord works these things in your heart. And you could be a child of any age. You don't just have to be a young one. If you're here tonight and you have not let put your trust in Jesus Christ, then let tonight be the night. If you haven't been baptized, then let's plan a time for you to be baptized. If you have, then that's God being faithful to his promises. And let tonight be the night of salvation for you. And so friends... Again, you don't need to repeat your baptism, but we're called to remember it. Not just remember it like, yeah, it happened. But remember it is like a spiritual thing. It is a worshiping thing, right? We remember the Lord's day to keep it holy. When we receive the elements, it says, take, eat, remember, and believe. Not just that it happened, but remember that we're participating in this. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been raised to newness of life. It's this body that was broken for us it's this blood that was shed for us remember and believe remember your baptism daily you bear the name of the father the son and the holy spirit remember that you have brought into the household of god rejoice beloved your sins are forgiven rejoice beloved you are clean rejoice beloved you have been buried with christ and you've been raised with him rejoice beloved you are indwelt by the holy spirit of god Rejoice, beloved, in the assurance of God's gracious goodness to you now and always. And rejoice, beloved, you have been signed, sealed, and delivered from the Father, from the Son to the Father, in and through the Holy Spirit. And there's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate you from that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you that as surely as we have been washed by water, so surely we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so surely have they been renewed and reborn by the Holy Spirit. And Father, we confess that we doubt this at times. And so we pray that we would get into the practice of remembering more and more our baptism. To remember that you have put your sign on us and that you have put your seal on us, that you have united us to Christ and that we belong to you and him and the Holy Spirit now and forever. 
And I pray that you would increase our baptism as you conform us more and more to the image of Jesus. May we walk in your ways for your glory and the good of our neighbor. And all God's children said, amen.